Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message. Is this thing on? Okay, good. And it's on my ear, so we're good. Okay. Well, thanks, James. That was awesome. Uh, It is really great to hear uh, how the word that goes out on a Sunday morning, like, is played out in the the everyday life around us. Thank you for that. Well, we're in week six of our journey through Daniel. Uh, This week marks the last of what is known as the court narratives, okay? So next week, we're going to be shifting gears into some really wild dreams and visions that Daniel has. But this week, we get to finish with a very famous story, maybe one of the most famous stories in the entire Old Testament. If you, like me, uh, went to Sunday school as a kid, your teacher, I promise you, had a poster of this story. Now, it was of indeterminate age, She could have opened it, or he could have opened it that morning, or it could have been 50 years old, this poster. We don't know for sure. Now, if they were pros, if they were Sunday school pros, they had a flannel board. That's right. And they acted it out before your very eyes, Uh, which is a little disturbing because in our story, a man gets thrown into a lion's den. (laughs) A little... Um, I've always loved this story. It's so clear. It's so strong. God is obviously so victorious. Uh, There's a right and a wrong. There's drama. The king even wants Daniel to live, which is refreshing, uh, considering Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Belshazzar really didn't, you know, care if Daniel lived or died. Uh, And it culminates at the end with everything being set right with Daniel being rescued and with the bad guys uh, getting what's coming to them. Uh, This past summer, my family and I moved into a new house. And by a new house, I mean a very old house. It is 114 years old. And as you're walking down into the basement, there's this open spot kind of underneath the stairs above you, and then you're in this basement stairwell. There's this open spot, and it kind of makes an L shape. And shoved into this big open spot is just old stuff, shoved all in it. Now, when we first moved in, we were just, you know, schlepping boxes. And, you know, I, I just took this place with junk in it, and my brain translated it into just a little self-contained area that needed no further explanation or exploration, okay? But a few weeks ago, I was walking down to the basement, and I noticed that there's this jar with old spoons in it, and some of them are engraved with initials. And I'm like, hmm, that's in my house. (laughs) I wonder what else is in there. Uh, And then a few days later, I look in this little old space, and there's this big handwritten sign, and it says, do not turn these switches off. And then there's arrows. And I was like, 
But then I kind of poked around. There are no switches, and there's no cables or cords or anything. I'm hoping it's really just an old sign. We'll see. Uh, but now every time I go down to the basement, I stop in that very cobwebby old stairwell and I look to see what else is waiting for me. Uh, I have found antique hardware for doors, lots of old jars, a tin of very old looking wood putty. Uh, I'm not going to open that. And um, there's this brown bag, and inside the brown bag is another bag, and that's as far as I've gotten. <laughs> it, well, there's critters in there. You know there is. So, uh, and I've also not given up hope that somebody squirreled away some money, and then they forgot about it. So we'll see. Um, there's some ways in which it's really lovely to preach a familiar story, and there's some ways in which it's really challenging. But I found myself approaching Daniel 6 in much the same way that I now enter my basement, not just as a self-contained story, but every time I've come to the text this week to study, I've found something new. And I've been very, very thankful for that, and I'm excited to share it with you this morning. So, okay, we talk a lot here at the Vineyard about formation, like a lot. Okay, we talk about this a lot. The things we give ourselves to end up determining uh, a lot about who we are, uh, both on the inside and the outside, the things we expose ourselves to shape how we relate to God and to others, right? We're just, I'm just setting like, I want us to all agree on that. Now, sometimes things form us that we don't have a lot of control over. And one of those things is our geographic location. You can move, but wherever you end up, where you live, is going to end up forming you in very subtle, unnoticeable ways. I've spent about half of my life living in Kentucky, and I can tell you that it has shaped who I am. Now, a good portion of those years has been in Campbellsville. And did you know that Campbellsville has a way of forming us? It does. Uh, I notice this most when I go to visit like a big city and I'm loving it, right? And there's the buildings and there's options for things. And, but there's always this one little part of my brain going, you don't belong here. <laughs> you don't belong here. Uh, I was talking to a friend this week and she had taken her family to a city for a little extended weekend trip. And she was like, it took us 20 minutes to drive four miles. How dare. This is how Campbellsville has formed us. 20 minutes, I can get to Columbia. I asked my husband, Dusty, how living here has formed him, and he kind of chuckled, and he said, you know, there is a bit of, of code switching that we need to do as people who did not grow up here, nor whose families did not grow up here. I, I mean, you're hearing me, right? I don't have the accent, but I can. 
And here's the really formative part, is not just being able to switch into the accent, it's knowing when to switch into the accent. That is the part that forms you. Uh, who all has been to Marshall's? I want an actual show of hands. Thank you. I've never seen such excitement about a new store ever. And I think it's because we all know that this is the closest we'll get to a target. Okay. And that is forming us. It is. It is. This is actually a really hilarious thought exercise, I encourage you to do it this week, especially if you didn't grow up here, but you now call this place home. It really has given me a chuckle, even right now. <laughs> uh, but here's the point that I want to make. There is a point to this, I promise. Daniel was also being formed. And he was formed having spent much of his life in exile. We read in Daniel chapter 1 that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you know, sacks the temple, takes the, the captives back, uh, indoctrinates them into this new way of life, into the Babylonian way of life. Now, scholars believe that Daniel was in his 80s when he was thrown into the lion's den. So if geographic location forms us in really quiet, subtle ways, and if we want to be in keeping with this theme of apocalypse or what is being revealed, okay, uh, we are now getting a sneak peek into what kind of person Daniel was formed into for decades and decades and decades. And the answer is that in exile... Daniel was formed into a faithful servant of the living God. Despite the best efforts of those who would have it otherwise. Mm. Uh, some of you may remember our series on Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, Lex Vivandi. Do you guys remember that? Uh, if you weren't here uh, during that little window of time, essentially what we said is that the way you pray informs the way you believe, which then informs the way you live, which then informs what? The way you pray. It's a beautiful cycle of discipleship, and we see it play out before our very eyes here in Daniel chapter 6. So, to review, there's a new ruler. His name we read this morning is Darius the Mede. I don't know what a Mede is. Um, the Medes and the Persians have conquered Babylon, and if we recall King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue made of many materials... Uh, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian would fulfill the silver arms part of this dream, a lesser metal, dualistic in nature, just as we have two arms, okay? So unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, the Medo-Persian Empire was accepting of all religion types, up to and including the Jews. Uh, we're going to take it one step further because we read in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, that it was Cyrus the Persian, one of the arms, who eventually let the captives go back. Even giving them back, 
their golden cups that we read about last week, even giving all those back, and he said, go, go back and rebuild the temple. So we read at the beginning of the service how Darius set up his government, how he dispersed power. Uh, we also saw, to no surprise, that Daniel began to stand out, as he does. Uh, and when you begin to stand out, the target plants itself firmly on your back, right? So the others in the court conspire against Daniel. We're going to pick up and read Daniel 6, 6 through 11. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, they always address him like this first, long live the king. Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors. Basically, we've all had a meeting without you. That the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. One thing that really jumped out to me here is that they just casually mentioned the den of lions. Not like, we'll create a den of lions for this specific consequence. It was already there. So, <laughs> you know the den of lions we keep? We'll just throw them in there. Um, you need one. <laughs> and now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians, with two arms, that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. Daniel was a person deeply formed by prayer and devotion to the living God. And the question we're going to spend just a little bit of time exploring this morning uh, is in this particular instance of trial and hardship, what did that formation reveal about Daniel? Uh, and in our instances of trial and hardship, what does it reveal about us? So that's where we're going to go. Uh, the first thing that stands out to me is that Daniel didn't change a thing when this law was passed, he didn't stop praying. He didn't start praying to Darius, nor uh, did he amplify things and go out and stir the pot for likes and follows, okay? <laughs> From, can borrow some social media language. He didn't do that either. He was simply steady, not tacking too far to either the left or the right. Uh, if we imagine the story happening in our present day lives, our risk of being thrown into a lion's den is exactly zero. Okay, it might be negative. Okay, <laughs> but I can promise you, there's going to be times when our faithfulness to God is uh, seen as our greatest weakness instead of our greatest strength, and we will have to pay the consequences for that. Um, and what that is is how the world measures faithfulness in terms of strength and weakness. I really think that we're conditioned uh, to be faithful to the things that win, 
to the things that advance us, to the things that get us where we hope to go, uh, as Adam says, to the up and to the right trajectory. We are not conditioned to be faithful to the things that will land us in a lion's den. And what I want to ask ourselves this morning, and I'm asking this question assuming all of us have gone through like some sort of hardship at some time and will again, okay? Who have we been on either side of a happening like this? Because Daniel was faithful to God before the decree was announced. He was faithful after. It didn't influence him one way or the other as to the degree to which he devoted himself to prayer and to following the ways of Yahweh. I fear that too often in my own life, I have to spin wildly about to come back to center. I just get this picture of somebody flailing around. Um, Steadiness is easy when things are steady. It just is. Um, But when things get hard, I find that my version of steadiness and a deeply formed version of steadiness uh, look very different. They can look very different. So we can look to Daniel as an example of how a steady follower of God is formed. All right, in verses 12 through 16, the unfolding of events after they've laid this trap for Daniel. They witness him praying. They go straight to the king. They remind him. They don't tell him first. We found Daniel. It's like my kids would be like, yeah, I have, you know, they're going to name names first. Uh, these, these guys didn't name names first. They reminded him of the law that he was beholden to. So they remind him what's going on. The king's like, yes, you know, of course, I signed the decree. It's irrevocable. And they say, well, we caught Daniel praying. The king realizes his mistake. And the Bible tells us he becomes very troubled. Verse 14 says that he spends all day trying to figure out how to get Daniel out of this. Which again, Nebuchadnezzar would have never done. Okay, off with his head. Um, but at the end of the day, he couldn't. So, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. Let's pick up with verse 16. We're going to read through verse 23. So at last, after trying not to, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to him, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and he spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. Uh, When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, the way you always do when you talk to the king, long, long live the king. Uh, 
My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they wouldn't hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I've not wronged you either, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den, and not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Hmm. Two things that Darius says have stood out to me, maybe more than all the treasure I've sifted through in this passage this week. And the first one is in verse 16. He says, may your God, who you serve so faithfully, rescue you. What did Daniel's formation reveal in this moment? He had become known on the outside for the way that he had been formed on the inside as a faithful servant. See, this was not so much an attack on Daniel's religion as it was on Daniel's devotion. Daniel's interior life, the way he prayed and believed God, informed his exterior life, the way he lived. And the two were congruent they matched up. Jesus talked a lot about this too, especially in Matthew 23, where he tells the Pharisees their lives were like cups. You remember this? They were only cleaned on the outside, but the inside was still dirty. It almost seems to me that this formation starts on the inside and works its way out until eventually an equilibrium is reached. We want a clean cup inside and outside, so where do we start? On the inside, and the outside becomes clean too. Do we want a life that is faithful to God on the inside and actions that are also faithful to God on the outside? Well, we start on the inside. We start on the inside. And a challenging question we can ask ourselves this morning is where might we be experiencing an imbalance? In that, where might there be some incongruity between our interior and our exterior formation? I was going to come up with some examples, and every time I came up with one, I was like, well, that's personal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sharing that. Uh, But if an area of your life comes to mind, maybe you're laughing because you're like, yeah, I'm not sharing mine either. I would like to encourage you to receive it not as condemnation, not as failure, but as an invitation to be further formed and to partner with the Lord in doing that. Yeah. Okay, verse 20. The next day, sleepless Darius rushes to the lion's den to find out Daniel's fate, and he calls out Daniel, servant of the living God, Was he able to rescue you? In a world that we have seen the last six weeks relies on magic, divination, astrology, and all manner of polytheistic idol worship. Read for that. Gods who are not alive. The one who was able to save is known to be living I don't want you to miss the contrast here because Darius did everything he could to keep Daniel out of that pit. 
And even as the highest ranking official of that court, he was powerless. And that's why I think this uh, imagery of him calling down to Daniel and speaking truth about who God is. uh, Daniel, did the living God save you? is so powerful because what are we told time and time again is that even kings and kingdoms will eventually bow to God. There is some level in which Daniel's life had been a testament to the type of God that he was faithful to. And Darius took note of that. And not only that, but... This current circumstance Daniel found himself in uh, sure does some foreshadowing, doesn't it, of the one who uh, will also find himself innocent, wrongly accused, sentenced to die, actually killed, sealed up in a tomb so nobody could rescue him, and then miraculously come back to life. Daniel was as good as dead. And yet not even a scratch was found on him. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for our formation that we serve a God who is alive? I think one of the answers to that question is when we are in a pit, he hears us. And we're formed by being heard by God. When we are in a bad way, He speaks to us. And we are formed by being spoken to by God. Um, Study after study in young children demonstrates the importance of exposing your little kids to language, right? If you are a parent of a young child, you have been told, read to your children. Talk to your children. Read to your children, Hey, you should be reading to your children. It's over and over and over. Um, But there's this study in 2018, this study from like MIT cognitive scientists that shows a link between not just exposing your children to words, but having conversations with them. It was found that having conversations with your young children actually appeared to change their brain. More so than flashcards or worrying about the word gap, simply, yeah, simply talking to your children and having a conversation with them greatly influenced their not just linguistic development, but their development as like a whole person. Now, if it's true of earthly parents, and if God is our Father who is alive, Do you see where we're going with this? Who speaks to us and hears us. I can't help but come to the same conclusion that engaging with the living God changes us in deeply formative ways as well. Yeah. I would love for you to receive that this morning. Yeah. Okay, band. You can come on up. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.